Hey, this is Russ DeVos, former pastor, church planter, sales rep, and wrestling coach, and serving currently as a men's spiritual and personal productivity coach. And I want to welcome you to The Wrestling Room, a podcast where we open the Bible and tackle head-on the challenging issues that you and I wrestle with every day, always asking and answering the most important question, what does God have to say about this? So join me now as we jump into the scripture. Welcome back to the wrestling room. Grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 21 through 26 today. We're going to finish chapter 1, and that is a promise. If you've ever asked yourself the question, why would God ever want to use me? You've looked around this big wide world and say, what in the world do I have to offer God? How can he use me? I feel so insignificant, so small, so inept, so inadequate. If you've ever asked yourself that question, I have asked myself that question hundreds of times, then I want to put that question to rest today in this passage. So grab your Bible and hold on because this is an encouraging message for anyone who's ever asked that question. So Father, give us wisdom. Help me to teach with with clarity, with passion, with purpose. May those who are listening receive with open hearts what you have for them. May it inspire, encourage, convict, exhort them to walk forward with boldness with you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1992, the first ever team of NBA players was represented at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. You know that team and I know that team by the name the Dream Team. This was potentially, as Sports Illustrated said, the most dominant squad ever assembled in any sport. And that is is likely the case. This team was absolutely dominant. They beat all of their opponents by an average of 44 points. They beat Croatia in the final by 32 points. And 11 of 12 of this dream team went on to be enshrined in the NBA Hall of Fame. You know their names. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone. Uh, John Stockton, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Clyde the Glide, my favorite player, Scottie Pippen, Chris Mullen, and of course, Michael Jordan. That is the dream team. No question about it. What we're going to look at today is another dream team, but they are the antithesis of this 1992 basketball team. It could be said, arguably, that they are the most motley and questionable squad ever assembled not made up of superstars. In fact, you might describe them as very common, very ordinary, even unlikely misfits. But these are Jesus' original dream team. And this is mind-blowing, but according to Revelation 21.14, while the memory of this 1992 team of superstars fades into oblivion in all likelihood, The memory of these 12 misfits, these 12 common, unlikely men, is inscribed and memorialized on the 12 foundation stones that hold the wall around the new eternal city called the New Jerusalem. In other words, for eternity, their names will be memorialized. It's, I believe, a shouting proclamation of the value system of God. He does things dramatically different than we do things. 
Friends, God uses common people, common things to do the uncommon. He uses natural things to do the supernatural. He uses ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And so I want to talk about that today, but here's the key. There is one ingredient, one factor that turns common into uncommon, that turns ordinary into extraordinary, that turns natural into supernatural. We're going to get to that. And so today I want to talk about the roles that Jesus gave to the 12 apostles, the requirement, one requirement, three roles, one requirement, and two results of the 12 apostles, this original dream team of Jesus. Before I do that, I want to give some background and ask a question, and we'll start with this question. In, in verse 21, it says, Peter is saying, it is necessary that we replace Judas. We need to bring the number from 11 to 12. Why? Why 12? Why not 15? Why not 7? Why not just leave it at 11? The number 12 is mentioned 187 times in Scripture, and it represents the perfect and complete authority of God, the final divine government. Now, we get a, a, a small picture of this in the 12 tribes of Israel. The completed nation of Israel was 12 tribes. Interestingly enough, Jesus emerges. He stands and we see him for the first time speaking at the age of 12. You look at the eternal city, the capital city, the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and it is tattooed with 12s. The walls are 144 cubits high or 12 squared. There are 12 foundation stones, 12 gates. 12s are everywhere on that city. And so number 12 is God's final divine government. Jesus is making a statement with these 12 apostles. Now, the statement he was making initially is that I reject the current religious system. Brothers and sisters, religion binds, religion oppresses, religion has caused more war, more heartbreak, more sorrow. And when Jesus began his ministry at age 30, he had watched for 30 years this oppressive religious system. And so he entered his ministry absolutely filled with fire and fury and compassion for those who had been oppressed. And you see Jesus initially picking a fight with the religious leaders. He, his whole ministry is bookended with two events, two, two identical events. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus going into the temple. He has a whip, and he drives out the money changers. He turns over the tables. He essentially vandalizes the temple, and it is game on. The religious leaders at that point know, this man is not our friend. And there is conflict all the way through the Gospels. As you read the Gospels, you'll see there's this spiritual warfare between Jesus and the religious system all the way through. And, and the, the religious leaders say to Jesus, you're demon-possessed. Then Jesus in John chapter 8 says, you are of your father the devil. So you see these, these, these arrows being fired at each other in some ways. And then in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives his most scathing, his most scathing indictment against these religious leaders. He, he indicts them as 
whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you are dead inside. You're hypocrites. You're a brood of vipers. You're liars. You're murderers. And the fruit of your ministry is that you produce people who are twice the son of hell as you are. That is brutal. And in so doing, Jesus essentially denounces and rejects the whole religious system. Listen to the final words to the people. He says, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. They will receive a hotter hell than others. That is a powerful statement. This was a declaration. I am draining the religious swamp and I'm going to replace it. So who did Jesus replace this religious swamp with? Because these guys were the elite. These guys were the educated, the intellectuals. These were the guys with the degrees, and they were polished. They knew how to pray. They knew how to, to, to study the scriptures. These guys were the dream team on paper. But Jesus said, you're done. I reject you. And he said, I'm going to replace you by 12 men who will represent the final government of God. So who are these guys? Well, they're the most unlikely guys you'll ever imagine, none of which came out of the religious world, not one. In fact, we could say that they were all unchurched. Let me give you a little, uh, a little snapshot of these guys. Possibly up to seven of them were fishermen. No uh, known intellectuals amongst them, no highly educated that we know of, no scholars, no public speakers, no Bible students. Like I said, they were outsiders to the whole religious establishment. Now, there were multiple political backgrounds. You have Simon the Zealot, who was a trained radical, <laughs> trained to overthrow Roman soldiers, the Roman Empire. Uh, likely, he carried a dagger under his cloak when he started walking and, and, and working with Jesus prepared to murder any unsuspecting Roman if the chance arose. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Matthew, the tax collector, who had bought a tax franchise from the Romans. He wasn't forced to be a tax collector. He bought a franchise from the Romans and then began to exact taxes from his own people to give back to the Romans. Of course, that's why they were so hated, these tax collectors. And if Simon would have met Matthew outside of being with Jesus, he likely would have stuck his dagger in Matthew. Now, these guys largely were tradesmen. In other words, they had rednecks and dirt underneath their fingernails. They were all from Galilee, except, interestingly enough, Judas was the only one, the one who had betrayed Jesus, was the only outsider. That's so interesting to me. All the rest of them likely either knew each other or knew of each other, had probably bumped into each other as they were growing up. Now, these guys were prone to mistakes, misjudgments, misunderstandings, arguments, bad attitudes, lack of faith, pride, and ultimately immense failure as we know. Jesus said they were slow learners. They were spiritually dense. In other words, they were spiritual blockheads. They had glaring faults and they had significant character flaws, yet they were personally selected by Jesus amongst many others. Guys, they did not volunteer for this job. They didn't apply for the job. They didn't submit a resume. They were chosen by Jesus to be the leaders of the final government of God, the final leadership team of heaven. 
In Luke 22, 29, Jesus said to them, you will sit with me at my table in my eternal kingdom and you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This gives you an insight into what the, the final, the final uh, government will look like. Essentially, Jesus said, you 12 men are my new leaders for this new government, this new Israel. We are part of this. This is our legacy. These are our roots. This is our story. So, 12 represents the government of God. Jesus had rejected the religious system and he had replaced it with these 12 common, ordinary misfit men. <laughs> so, let's ask the question then, what were the roles of the apostles? What did Jesus call them to do, and we see that back in our passage in the book of Acts. First, you look at verse 22. It says, One of these should become a witness with us of the resurrection. A witness. The first role they were called to fulfill was that they were to testify with audacity. Now, audacity means boldness, fearlessness. <laughs> they were to testify. A witness is one who has seen or heard something and is willing to tell what he's seen or heard. <laughs> now, what had they seen or heard? Very clearly in this passage, their focus, their witness, their testimony was to be of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there are so many facts that litter our history. So many important things that have happened. But I want to say to you this. There is no greater fact in all of history than that of the God-man, Jesus, being beaten and battered until the scripture says he was unrecognizable, then brutally nailed and tortured on a cross, a spear plunged through his heart, wrapped like a mummy, placed in a tomb, and three days later, he defied the heavy hand of death. Satan was 1,000 out of 1,000 with every person who'd ever come before. And Jesus rose up out of that grave, an established fact of history, and then declared to his disciples, I am coming again. That was to be their testimony. And here's what I want to say to you and to me. We cannot get distracted with all the other things that the world wants us to get distracted with. The social reform, saving the earth, all of this. No, our message as believers is that Jesus came out of the grave and he's coming back. Friends, there are many people, they don't even think about Jesus during the day. Jesus is nowhere in the periphery of their thought life anywhere, much less that he's alive and coming back. It is our role, it was the role of the apostles, and now it is our role to be a witness, to be a testifier of the fact, the established fact of history that Jesus came out of the grave, defeated death, and he's coming back, and you've got to be ready. That was the content of their testimony. Well, what was the conclusion of the testifiers? What happened to them? The word witness is the word in the Greek, martis. It's the word from which we get our word, martyr. Martyr. What happened to the 12 apostles? 
Well, 11 of 12 of them died as martyrs. Let me give you the details. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was beheaded. Philip was stoned to death. Nathaniel was crucified. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas was killed when a spear was driven through his body. Little James was stoned to death. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half. Thaddeus was clubbed to death. And Matthias, who we'll talk about in a moment, was stoned to death and then beheaded in Ethiopia. Jesus called them to be witnesses. A witness is someone who is willing to testify even at the risk of their own lives. The history of our faith is that of hardship and death. Jesus said, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And yet in America, we have two idols that we worship. They are comfort and safety. And what I've found is that so many of us, we have a brand of Christianity that is afraid of pain and certainly scared to death of death. This whole COVID uh, debacle has exposed this radically. We hold so tightly to our lives as if this is all we have. No, it's not. This is only the bus station. This is only the beginning. Eternity is coming. Eternity is coming, and it's a disgrace to Jesus to pursue comfort and safety when the fathers of our faith pursued and endured hardship and death. That is our legacy. And friends, I want to say to you, the next time someone says to you, be safe, I encourage you to say to them, be audacious, be bold, be courageous, be done with this, be safe, baloney. We don't need to be safe. We need to be courageous. We need courage. It says in Revelation 12, 11, of the believers who are giving their lives for their faith, they loved not their lives even to the death. And here's one thing I want to say to you. The safest place in the world is right smack dab in the will of God. That might be in Afghanistan. That might be in the Muslim world. That might be who knows where. But the safest place for you and me is right in the center of God's will. We pursue safety as if it's something we can truly grab onto. No, the safest place is right where God has us, obeying him, serving him, loving him, pouring out our lives for him. That is the safest place in the world. So number one, they were to witness or testify with audacity, with boldness and courage. They were to be witnesses. Number two, they were to be ministers. In verse 25, it says, we are going to find somebody to take over the ministry that Judas vacated. The ministry, that is the word diakona, diakonia. It's the word we get, our word deacon. And it means one who serves and meets the needs of others. The second role Jesus called them to was to serve with humility was to serve with humility. And this was such a stark contrast to the religious system. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, listen, you love the greetings, pastor this and pastor that. You love to be called rabbi. You love the, 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 the seats at the table, at the head of the table. You love it when people listen to you pray and they ooh and they awe, they awe over your, your glossy, beautiful, eloquent prayers. You love all the accolades, the positions, the titles, the power. 
Jesus said, it's not to be that way with you. The greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus emphasized you're not to practice top-down leadership where you sit on the throne of your title and look down on the people that you're serving like cogs in your wheel building your little kingdom. And this kind of leadership is everywhere in our world. Someone has said it's hard to look down on somebody when you're washing their feet. And that was the kind of leadership that Jesus called the 12 apostles to was stoop-down leadership. Not top-down leadership, but stoop-down leadership. Stoop-down, wash-off, and lift-up leadership. And Jesus said it over and over, no doubt, to his disciples. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, whose feet are you washing? Who are you stooping down to? Our role, as we see reflected in our leaders, is to stoop down, to serve with humility, to pour out our lives for people, for people. Are you others-focused or are you self-focused? The third role was that of apostleship, verse 25. They were to represent Jesus with authority. Apostole is the word used in this passage in the Greek, and it means one who is sent as an official representative of someone else who bears the rights and the authority of the sender. They're an ambassador. So, brothers and sisters, the third role of the apostles was to represent Jesus with authority. With authority. Now, what was the apostle to do? To represent. But this is a compound word that means re-present. And that literally means to introduce before the public again. Now, the first time Jesus came, he presented himself in person, in the flesh. Now, he presents through us. We are Jesus in the flesh to people everywhere, our neighbors, our family members, our, our wife, our children. We are a re-presenter of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our first job isn't to bring in a paycheck. Our first job isn't to even be a good dad or mom or husband or wife a good neighbor. Our first job is to represent Jesus. Present him again into the public. What a promotion. I don't know what you do for a living, but when you come to know the Lord Jesus, you become a representer of him. It is a promotion no matter what you're doing. You get promoted. Now, how are we to represent him? Well, with authority, with authority. A representative came with all the rights and authority of the one who sent them. And Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And he then gave it to his disciples. We are God's delegated authority on this planet. Authority means the ability to influence thoughts, opinions, and behavior. The ability to influence, to move somebody in their thinking, to move somebody in their opinions, to move somebody in their behavior. And Jesus was the ultimate picture of this. The book of Mark is littered with the words authority. 
Jesus taught with authority. He cast out demons with the authority. People were drawn to him because of authority. It says, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious system, there was no authority there. It was oppressive, it was heavy, but it wasn't authoritative. I was on a train in India years ago, and I began talking with a Hindu man about Jesus and about the scriptures and we drew a crowd and they were all listening and we we were going back and forth and over time the conversation came to an end and everyone dispersed and went back to their seats and I was headed back to my seat and a Muslim man came up to me and in a soft humble voice he said when you speak of such things you must speak with authority and it powerfully struck me to my core this Muslim man with such humility saying, Russ, when you speak of Jesus, when you speak of the word of God, you must speak with authority. And God used that Muslim man to minister deeply to me. When we represent Jesus, when we represent Jesus, if there's no authority, if we're not moving anybody, if there's no influence, we are not representing him accurately. So I'd ask you, when people see your life, what version of Jesus are they seeing? So often I pray this simple prayer because I feel so weak and inadequate so often to represent Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, fill me with the power of Jesus. Fill me with the presence of Jesus. Fill me with the personality of Jesus. Because if it's about me. I will not represent Jesus with any authority whatsoever. So brothers and sisters, Jesus called them to fill three roles. They were to testify of the resurrection of Jesus with boldness, with audacity. They were to serve with humility and they were to represent him with authority. Now, this is an exceedingly high calling and just teaching it, I feel, I feel the heaviness of it. I feel the, the tallness of the order. So how are they going to get this done? How are they going to get this done? And here's where we get to that secret ingredient, that factor that I was talking about initially. So buckle up. Go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and there's one word. See if you can figure it out as I read through these two verses. One word that gives us that secret ingredient. Peter again is saying, It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. Did you figure out the word as I read? The word is simply time. Time. In Mark 3.14, Jesus called his disciples to be with him, to be with him, to spend time with him. He didn't enroll them in a seminary class. He didn't plug them into a small group or a Bible study. He called them to be with him. It was on-the-job training with the master. Now, 
What kind of time then would they have with Jesus? What kind of time? Number one, they would have quantity time. Quantity time. Look in verse 22. It says, we are looking for men who have been with him, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us. In other words, someone who had been there from start to finish, from the baptism of John, when Jesus was baptized, and the dove came from heaven, representing the Holy Spirit, and the voice came from heaven, representing the Father. They were there when that happened. And then they were also there all the way from that point to the time when Jesus went back into heaven. All that time, start to finish. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, introduces a concept of the 10,000 hours to mastery. Some of you have heard of this. In other words, those who invest 10,000 hours of focused, deep practice will become a master in whatever they are practicing. Now, brothers and sisters, the creator of the universe, Jesus, had poured himself into these 12 men for roughly three years. So let's do a little bit of math. How many hours is that? If 10,000 hours leads to mastery, how many hours did they spend with Jesus? Well, 365 times three, and let's factor 14 hours a day, that equals 15,330 hours that they had spent with Jesus. Now, likely that's not exactly the number. It's probably a bit less than that. But suffice it to say, they had been with Jesus at least 10,000 hours. In Acts 4.13, it reads, the members of the religious council, these, these are the guys that Jesus was rejecting, they were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men, with no special training in the scripture, and they began to recognize them as men who had been with Jesus. We could just take that verse and preach that one verse. Ordinary men, no special training, but recognize them as having been with Jesus. That is the ultimate, ultimate compliment. If someone ever says to you, I recognize that you've been with Jesus, friend, <laughs> You've just received the ultimate compliment. Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher from years ago, he said this, and listen carefully to this. He said, the most important and difficult task for the man or woman of God today is to take their life by their teeth and buck popular opinion in order to make more room in their lives for God. There are so many things pulling for our attention. You have to battle. You have to go to war to make more room in your life for God. Common doesn't become uncommon without time. There is no substitute for time with Jesus. No substitute. So my question to you is how much room have you carved out how much time have you made in your day, in your life, to spend with Jesus? Jesus called them not to do religious stuff, 
not to bear a religious title, not to wear a cross or a religious t-shirt. He called them to be with him. Time. Quantity time. But number two, it was not just quantity time, it was quality time. Listen to verse 21. These were men, it says, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now, what is that saying? All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, these were guys who had been with Jesus in the morning when he got up and at night when he went to bed. They, say, they saw him with his hair tousled from a night of sleep with sleepers in his eyes. They saw him before he went to bed at night and when he climbed into the sack. These are guys that had been with him when he was rising, when he was resting, in private and in public. They saw the entirety of his life, not just little snapshots. They knew Jesus. Listen to what John says. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, there are two words that are very important. We proclaim to you, John says, or we witness to you, we declare to you the one who existed from the beginning. Who is that? That's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, whom we have heard and seen. Then he goes on to say, we beheld him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. There are two words, seen and beheld. Seen indicates looking at a picture, a snapshot. Beheld means going to the movie. That word beheld in the Greek is theomai. We get our word theater from that word. In other words, John is saying this. We didn't just see a picture of Jesus. We didn't just glance at him as he was up on the stage. We walked into the theater. We bought the ticket. We went into the theater and we watched the movie of the Lord Jesus Christ. We viewed him attentively. And that's exactly what they did. They attended the theater of Jesus. The public and prayer life of Jesus. They saw it. The public and private servant heart of Jesus. They saw it. He just didn't serve when people were watching. He served in private as well. They watched him teach and heal and cast out demons late into the night when he was exhausted. And they watched it over and over and over and over. They knew this is what characterized him. It wasn't just a one-off. They watched him confront religious leaders and comfort the two sisters whose brother had died, Mary and Martha. They had also experienced their own filthy sandals being stripped off and watching their master stoop and wash their polluted, filthy feet. They had attended the theater of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew him intimately, and in John 21, 25, in a, in, a, in a reflective, a deeply reflective moment, John says, listen, there are so many details we could write about Jesus. And if we did, there would be so many books that the whole world couldn't hold them. The library would have to be bigger than the world to hold all the books of all the details, all the things we saw about Jesus' life. They knew him. They were with him. Now, I can already hear the objection by some of you. Well, they were actually with Jesus. I haven't seen him like they did. Brothers and sisters, we've got it even better in many ways. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples prior to him going to the cross, just the night before in all likelihood, he said this. But the helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In John 15, 26, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness of me. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God doesn't bring attention to himself. He points to Jesus. He teaches about Jesus. He helps us get to know Jesus. He brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. And he lives inside of us constantly, always. And I can tell you the reality of this is true. The scripture says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus was not just meant to be known about cognitively. He was meant to be experienced deeply, intimately, relationally. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can you say with conviction and passion and persuasiveness, I have tasted Jesus and I've seen Jesus and I know that he is good. It requires quality time. This past year, I can tell you I have tasted and seen that Jesus is good. How have I done that? Simple practice. I have begun driving in my car, listening to the scripture through Bluetooth, bulk passages, primarily the Gospels, because my whole goal has been to get to know Jesus. And when you hear the book of Mark, for instance, read from chapter 1, verse 1, right to the very end, in one sitting, it's like you've just sat through a movie of the life of Jesus. And then you do it again and again, and you pick up things and you see things and nuances and types of his personality and, and his tendencies and his heart and his mind and his thinking. You begin to get to know Jesus in a way you've never known him before. And this is happening. Brothers and sisters, this is not just theory. This is reality. Tozier, A.W. Tozier, the old, the old, another old preacher from years ago, he said this, the man or woman who would truly know God must give time to him. Not just quantity, but quality time where you're saying, Jesus, Holy Spirit, show me your son. Holy Spirit, show me the son of God. Show me Jesus. Teach me about Jesus. So we've seen the three roles of the 12, to witness with audacity, to serve with humility, and to represent Jesus with authority. And we've seen the requirement, time. But let's conclude with the two results that came from Jesus calling these 12 apostles. Number one, when we spend time with Jesus, our heart is changed and the world gets a gift. So number one, the world gets a gift. In verse 24 and 26, it says, they prayed and ask the Lord, you know the hearts of all men, Lord. Show which of these two you have chosen. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the twelve disciples. The word or the name Matthias means gift from God. Gift from God. Brothers and sisters, listen. You and I are either part of the solution in this world, or we are part of the problem. 
I choose to be part of the solution. So help me God. And when we spend time, quality time, quantity time with Jesus, it says, you know, they prayed and said, you know the hearts of all men. Well, Matthias had had a heart that was shaped and formed by three years with Jesus. And when that happens, you become a gift to the world. The world gets a gift from God through you. Your life becomes part of the solution, not part of the problem. Not that you're perfect, but you become a problem solver, not a problem creator. And here's what I know. That ordinary, common, and even unlikely people, plus time with the extraordinary King of Kings, Jesus, <laughs> equals a gift of God to the world. The first result is that the world gets a gift from God. But the second re result is that Jesus gets glory. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, and we'll conclude with this passage. It's so powerful. Jesus gets glory. Paul is, re uh, is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. I want to tell you something. In that culture, those disciples, those redneck, dirt under the fingernails, those guys were not even thought of. They were, they, you walk right by them, you didn't even see them. They were counted as nothing at all. But here Paul says, God chooses the things that are counted as nothing at all and uses them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, Paul writes, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. He takes misfits, failures, <laughs> common, ordinary, goofballs, mavericks, rebels, and he turns them into uncommon people that he can use and here's what happens. He says, therefore, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord, because this is the way God does it. He uses the most unlikely to do the most crazy things. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The result is that the world gets a gift. You become a gift of God to the world because you've spent time with Jesus quality time, quantity time, and now you are testifying with boldness, with audacity. You are serving with humility in the power that Jesus gives you, and you're representing him, representing him with authority, and your life is having an influence. Common becomes uncommon. Natural becomes supernatural. Ordinary becomes extraordinary, and the denominator is time. Jesus original dream team, spent much time with him. And their hearts were changed, and they changed the world. Father, may this speak deeply to us, and now may we take the action needed 
by the power of your Holy Spirit to make changes, make adjustments, do whatever we need to do to get that time with you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with me. We'll see you next time. God bless your week. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me this week in the wrestling room. If you were blessed and challenged by this teaching, please support us by sharing with family and friends and leaving a rating and review. That would be so helpful. Also, make sure to visit my website, The Catalyst, at www.catalystcoachinghq.com to learn about my program for men called Foundations 101. I am literally watching men's spiritual lives personalize their marriages and families completely turn around as they go through this program. I'd love for you to check it out. That was www.catalystcoachinghq.com. Finally, if you'd like to watch these messages in video, you can check out my YouTube channel by entering The Wrestling Room in the YouTube search bar. Again, thanks so much for joining me today in The Wrestling Room. We'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.